I had Winona Judd in my monitors for four years. Never felt like that. And here I heard that high note that I'd heard when I was 13 years old and it sounded the same and I was, mm -hmm. that's it. No one else I've ever worked with has had that profound effect on me. Welcome to the Rediscovering Debbie Campbell podcast. At the end of last episode, we heard about Debbie's first drink, the story that kicks off her alcoholic journey. We also heard about the band Buckwheat and how Debbie moved to Tulsa after that band broke up. In my many visits to Tulsa lately, I've been talking with all the musicians that played with Debbie or that were in her bands. And one of the people I connected with was a keyboard piano player, John Glazer. John's memories of Debbie go back to the buckwheat days himself. I heard Hey Little Girl on the radio here when I was 13 years old. I heard Hey Little Girl on the radio. And I thought, who is that? At Debbie's voice. I heard her hit her high note, and I thought, that sounds like Aretha Franklin. But I knew it wasn't, because the DJ said, that's buckwheat. And I thought, who the heck is buckwheat? I went and bought the 45. Because I was a young musician, my parents would buy me about any records I wanted. And I got it, and I still was like, God, this girl kills. And still didn't know who she was. And then about three years later, I'm still too young to go into nightclubs, but I saw her name on one of the hotel marquees, probably Tradewind Central, and it said Debbie Campbell, the guy I was making music with, playing in a band with, said, that's the girl that sang with Buckwheat. I was like, all these years, I've been wanting to know who that was, and now I know. And he said, let's go see her. And I said, I'm 16 years old. I can't get in the club. And he said, I'll get you in. So we went in and we heard her playing, couldn't tell you who the musicians were, but I was just blown away. Here's this little lady that sings with all sorts of soul. And she just floored me. And I just hoped that someday I would play with her. I went on to do lots of other things. And then I moved back here, 2002, and Debbie was here and had been working with my friend, Pat Savage, Chuck and I didn't know each other yet. John is referring to drummer Chuck DeWalt, who you heard in the first episode of the show. We'll also hear more from him at the end of the show. But for now, let's get back to what John was saying about what he experienced when he came back to Tulsa and started playing with Debbie. She'd been playing with him and Spencer and a bunch of other guys. And Spencer, I guess, had other gigs he had to do. And I think Pat and Chuck told her, you ought to call John if Spencer's not available. And I started working with her. We probably did a few private parties, but we did regularly a little restaurant on Peoria that served Mediterranean food. So we would play there, I think, every other Tuesday. And the way we were set up in this little restaurant, there was a wall, just a facade, not dividing rooms or anything. And I remember she hit one of those high notes and I literally rocked back in my seat like that, put rest in my head against the wall, like, oh my God, that's that voice. I had toured with Winona Judd, played with tons of other singers. I never reacted like that to any other voice and still haven't. She just had such a singular voice and so much soul. By that time, she was singing mostly jazz. And once we got to know each other a little better, I said, Debbie, why don't you do some of that old R&B stuff you used to do? There's nobody around that can do it like you. And she said, 
you know, I've been thinking about that. We might ought to. Because I had heard her sing Aretha's Baby I Love You when my friend snuck me into the club as a teenager. And she did it. And again, I just had like chills. And it was just like, oh my God, I have never heard a voice like this. Certainly never worked with a voice like that before. You moved away from Tulsa and came back for, for twenty a, years. For twenty yeah. years, and what did you? What were you doing? Most I of went that time? first. I went to college in Denton, Texas. There's a really good music school there, University of North Texas. At that time, it was North Texas State. Studied jazz there. Got sick of being in school. Moved into Dallas, which was really my goal. I thought I want to see what I can do in a larger market. So I went there first. Then I went to Los Angeles, played on some recording sessions with Rick Springfield and some other people. But L.A. just terrified me. I got behind on bills and I thought, I got to go back to Dallas. I go to somewhere I know I can work steadily and get out of financial trouble. So I came back to Dallas. Then I got a chance to audition for the Judds and I got the job. So did their farewell tour and did three subsequent tours with Winona. And then got a divorce, wasn't working with Winona anymore, got out of Nashville, moved to Colorado for a couple of years. And then my dad still lived here. And I thought I want to be with him as much as I can and moved back here in 2002. Been here ever since. Wow. John sure had an exciting career before he settled down in Tulsa. As we continued talking we discovered something else he'd been a part of, dueling pianos. When I was in Dallas, I was one of the creators of that. Me and two other guys at a club there, and now they're franchised and licensed all over the country, but it's not that musical. I remember telling Chuck when I was doing dueling pianos here, I said, man, I feel like I need a feeding tube because I was up on stage going, this isn't very musical. There's as much comedy and bad comedy as there was music. And I remember when we started it in Dallas, we had teams of two that would exchange places on the stage. And he said, I just heard something pretty troubling. I said, what? And he said, somebody came up to the door and said, what time did the comedians start? And I started thinking, hmm, might want to get out of this at some point. <laughs> so I found more musicality here. So I wanted to be with my buds you know, and hopefully make music with him. And Pat and I did recording together. Pat Savage, who he's referring to, is a guitar player, songwriter, and producer from Tulsa that worked on a lot of Debbie's albums. And currently he's really active in songwriting. He's flying back to Nashville and attending songwriter events. And it's been kind of hard to get on his calendar. I'm hoping to find a time to record an interview with him one of these days. But for now, with John, I wanted to know what the scene was like when he came back to Tulsa when he did. The Tulsa sound, as it was when Debbie and Jim Sweeney and people like that were at their peak, had become dormant. Nothing was happening. They were still gigging, Debbie and Jim and Jim mm -hmm. Byfield, some of those people. Ended up playing in a band with Jim Sweeney and Chris Campbell called the Sweeney Campbell Band. Really good band. But bands in this town, unless you're working casinos, just don't make any money. So I've been playing solo for 11 years now. It's interesting to hear about the ups and downs of Tulsa as a music town. As we continued talking, we got onto the subject of how working with Debbie was unique from working with other singers and musicians. Another one of those times we're playing at the Mediterranean restaurant, we were on a break and she goes, 
John, I know you think you're playing these songs right, but you're not. And I said, what are you talking about? And she pulled out the charts and she said, see that chord right there? You're not playing that. I said, well, I'm doing a substitute chord because that's kind of what I've developed as a jazz player at school and on gigs. And I said, so I know it's not what Spencer wrote and what Spencer played, but I think it's good. And if I remember correctly, I think Charlie said, Deb, I think that John's bringing cool things to your music. And this is paraphrasing. And I think you ought to let him go. And so she kind of gave me a little more leeway after that. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember her ever giving me direction after that. And we kept playing together. She didn't fire me. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, the one time that we did get to play for Bama Pies together, she let me do some of the sing-along things that I had learned at Dueling Pianos. It went over and she goes, do more of that. So I was like, okay. And then when she wasn't able to play for the Christmas party, I ended up doing a lot of that because I thought, Dad's not here to sing. I got to do something. And I didn't sing like her. So I was like, I got to do some sort of show to make them happy. John's talking about the last year or so of Debbie's life where she had to step back from some of her musical activities in order to focus on fighting cancer. We'll talk more about that phase of her life in a future episode. For now, I was really grateful that John sat down with me, talked about his connection to Debbie and the connection he had to other musicians and their stories. After the break, we'll talk to Scott Acock, a host of the local Tulsa radio show Folk Salad and a mainstay of the indie Tulsa music community. If you've ever wanted to edit your own videos or podcasts, but were overwhelmed by how complicated the software was, you are in luck. Descript, or Descript, is a magical tool that allows you to edit text as if you're editing a Google Doc. We use it for this show and use it collaboratively with clients and co-producers on all of our shows. And trust me, it's easy to learn. Click our affiliate link in the show notes to discover the magical tool for yourself. And if you want some guidance on how to learn and use it, please sign up for our Magic of Descript newsletter. It's the same kind of scene. There are those special places like that where people just find a home. And I think Tulsa is one of those. It's difficult to get Tulsa musicians to leave. Not very many of them like to hit the road. Scott Acock co-hosts Folk Salad on the local Tulsa NPR station. And my dad got to know him because of his amazing house concerts. Just as I was getting started with this project, my dad and I sat down with him at his dining room table, and we talked about Tulsa music, his radio show, and his own formative experience of getting to share the stage with Debbie as a college kid when no one else in the Tulsa scene would give him that opportunity. I'm more connected to it now through the radio show than I was then. At that time, I wasn't doing a radio show. Right after I got out of college is when I started kind of going to the clubs and making myself familiar with the music around here. At Oral Roberts, we weren't supposed to drink, and I didn't. I followed the rule because I signed a honor thing, and my grandfather said, your signature is your word. So I signed it in the honor code and followed it. And now my wife, who I met at ORU, she didn't. <laughs> she said I'd signed it because I had to to go to school there, but my fingers were crossed. <laughs> so she would occasionally go out and dance and drink beer, but I didn't. And I didn't even have a car. I was stuck on campus. But when I graduated and got my first job and got a car, I started going around because I loved music so much. And at some point, I did come across Debbie, probably at Boston Avenue Market, and I was like, 
whoa, who is this? You know, just a little dynamo. How can somebody that little belt and have that big a voice, you know? She's just ball of energy on stage. So I loved her right away. And my wife-to-be, we were dating at the time. We'd go to Boston Avenue. They had a thing called Spring Fling, which was a big night. And everybody would come in tuxedos, and then they'd have a fall ball. It was formal, but people would wear a tuxedo with tennis shoes. Or someone would paint a tuxedo on a T-shirt, you know. Kind of open for them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was all in fun. And I would dress up for it and wear a fedora. And so people would come to the spring thing and fall ball. And often Debbie's band was the house band for those things. So it was a lot of fun. So I knew her through just as a fan. And I had met her and spoken to her, but my younger brother moved out here and he was unattached to anyone. And he was going out a lot and dancing to meet people. And he became like a groupie with Byfield and the Brothers of the Night. Debbie was singing with them. And he became a huge, huge fan of that band. He was a good friend with Debbie, and they talked a lot. They'd hang out during the break sometimes. So because I would sometimes go with him, I'd get to talk to Debbie a little bit more. I might have told her that I'm a musician and I play guitar. Playing guitar was not my forte. I could play it enough to write, but I didn't even desire to be a great guitar player. I wanted to be a songwriter. And I mentioned that to her. And then I went to the Full Moon Cafe to hear her play. And then during the break, I just walked up and said, would you mind if I got up and did a song? She said, absolutely. I'd asked other people, and they'd always said no. And I was really getting discouraged because I don't want to say names, but I had one musician actually. I asked if I could play on a break, and he said, I don't know you. And I said, well, I'm not from here. I didn't grow up here. I came from Arkansas, but I came out here to go to college. And I love music. I love what you guys are doing. And I just wondered if I could play on a break. And he said, who are you? I don't, I don't really know you, man. He said, no, I'm not going to let you play. But Debbie, you know, she talked to me, and we'd had conversations. She knew my brother, but she'd never heard me play. And she didn't require that. And I didn't have to be a member of the Oklahoma. You know, I didn't have to grow up here. And maybe that's because she came from Texas here. You know, I wonder. Now that I think about it, maybe that's it, that she didn't go to high school here or any of that. And it, it did feel a little like a boys club here. And you had to kind of be in the club and know people to be welcomed into the tribe. And I didn't feel like I was part of the tribe, but Debbie just immediately said, sure, get up and play a song. So I jumped up there, got the guitar. I started playing a song called I Saw Elvis, and it's got a kind of a gospel feel to it. And I went into the chorus and it just took her a second, man. She jumped up on the mic with me. She sang harmony with me, and I was like, oh, cloud nine. <laughs> For a starting out kid, 20-something, I hadn't had any hardly experience playing in front of people. It was like, a shot in the arm, man. I just sang that one song and that was it, but that was enough, man. So that's probably my best memory of her. I just think it said a lot about who she was. Wow, that's such a great story about her generosity of spirit, allowing Scott to jump up on stage and play a song for her crowd, essentially. After Scott told us about that story, we got talking about his radio show, Folk Salad, and I asked about how it got started and how it gets made. We used to do it on cassette tape, and if I could find those, I've got a couple of them, but they're really stiff. They're, <laughs> they're not very good. 
I mean, we were real nervous in the beginning, and we over-edited. We would take out every little fault. If we made a mistake or if we stumbled on a word, we'd take it out. We just cleaned it, clean, clean. You know, I edited it to death. And we did that for about a year. Where that's the way we would work, and we'd edit out every little uh and every little... And then after close to a year, we were together. We're listening to the show on Sunday night on the radio. And we happened to be together and we turned the show on. We were listening and I said, you know, Richard, people don't talk like that. That doesn't sound like how real people talk. People do stumble. And they do sometimes make a mistake. Now, we, make, we take out big mistakes yeah, and I'll edit out. You know, if if we get tickled or some over something, and it, and and certainly if we say shit or damn <laughs> or oh crap, I'm you know because we made a mistake, we're gonna take that out. But we try to leave in some uhs and some, uh, and then if we, if we stumble on something we can't remember, and the other one, you know, sometimes he'll say, and that's from. Uh, and he can't remember the CD, and I'll say, oh, and then I'll jump in and give him the name of the CD. Well, in the past, we would have taken that out because he didn't want to sound dumb or I didn't want to sound dumb if I was the one. And then we thought, wait a minute, that's ridiculous. We that's sound, how people talk. Yeah, we sound human, and we sound like a friend helping a friend out who can't remember the name of the CD. Well, in the spirit of Scott, we're leaving in a lot more ums than I'm actually used to leaving in here. But it was a great reminder that it's really important to sound natural whenever you're making anything for people to listen to. So we thought that just adds to the charm of the show. It's like two friends sitting around listening to music, talking about music. And that's what we decided we wanted it to sound like. So we make a point of, in the show, we mainly talking to the audience, but we also try to make a point of talking to each other on, on the air as well, because it gives it more of that feel. After we finished our shop talk about our various audio shows, we got to talking about the house concerts that Scott had been doing. That was how my dad had met him in the first place. I was doing a radio show and had been doing it from, I think we started in 1999, and somewhere around 2001, traveling singer-songwriters started calling us. They'd been sending their records to us, and we'd been playing their music on the show. They were always passing through Tulsa. It wasn't really a destination. They were on their way to Dallas, Austin, Kansas City, California, Colorado. And they would say, I'm on my way through Tulsa. Is there some place I can play in Tulsa where I can make some money and have a good listening audience? And I would say, well, I can give you some bars, but it's not going to be a listening audience. Particularly, you'll have some people that will listen, but won't be a sit-down listening audience. And they'll probably either charge $5 cover or none, and you'll just play for tips, because that's how it was set up. And that's not really what they were looking for. But I got tired of basically telling people, no, there's no place to play, when I knew how good these people were. And I kept thinking, man, if people just could hear them, what a treat, you know, to introduce somebody that's not on mainstream radio and let them hear them. Kind of like they used to do back in the old days when the traveling troubadours would just play in a someone's house or front porch. But it never even occurred to me to do a house concert. And then finally this guy calls me up. I said, well, I'm sorry, man. There's no place to play in Tulsa. Just as almost like off the cuff. I said, unless you want to play my living room. Just joking. He said, I'll play your living room. And I said, really? 
He said, how big's your living room? And I said, I don't know, maybe we hold 20 people, 25. It turns out the most we ever had in here was about 50. And that was all the way into the kitchen, you know? Mm-hmm. And he said, I'll do a house concert. And I said, what's a house concert? <laughs> he said, it's playing your living room. <laughs> he said, look, Google it. So I, I did, I Googled house concerts and it turns out they're all over the United States and all over the world. You know, it's funny. I used to put on house concerts out here in Los Angeles, so I'm pretty familiar with them myself, and they can be the best way to see music live, just right up in person. And it's great as a performer, too, because you really get a sense of what the audience is feeling in reaction to your music. Well, it was awesome to sit down and talk with Scott. And after this next break, you're going to hear from the other guy I talked to at the very beginning of this project, Chuck DeWalt, Debbie's drummer. All those years... I'd play three, four nights a week. And I'd drag home about 2.30, get up at six, go to work. And of the 43 years I worked at the city, I had a total of three sick days. Hey everyone, my name is Aubrey Allen and I'm a producer here on Rediscovering Debbie Campbell. Together, Linz and I have put hundreds of hours into this project so far and we're just getting started. So if you want to help us continue to tell Debbie's story, please click the donate button in our show notes or in our link tree to make a one-time donation. Every little bit will go directly towards the production of this show, which works to showcase and preserve the history of Debbie Campbell and artists like her. So thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. A true musician, in my book, is one that's never worked a day in their life. No real job. Chuck DeWalt has been playing music his whole life. And as a drummer, he's been playing in nightclubs, on festival stages, and in recording studios, too numerous to count. When I first started this project, my dad had his number and reached out, and we all went out to lunch together. And I told Chuck a bit about what I wanted to do with the podcast, and he started telling me stories, some of which we probably shouldn't record. But when he did allow me to hit the record button, he loved talking about Debbie. I met Debbie through Gary Gilmore. I was playing at the Harvard Club with a piano player three or four nights a week. So I was going down the hall, and I walked by the ballroom, and I heard this band, a piano player, bass player. And I turned around and went back because it was Gilmore, and I have never heard anybody play like he does. I thought, oh, my God. So anyway, I went and introduced myself, and we hired him to start playing bass at the club there. And then Debbie came out one night and started singing. So she started working with us. And then that's how I met her. So after Chuck and Debbie started playing together, it wasn't long before another new band started, Brothers of the Night. Byfield and Peter Nichols are the ones that put Gilmore, me, Byfield, and Hickerson together. It was probably 79, 80 when we started playing together, because see, that's the four piece. But we ended up adding Walt Richmond, and he went with us over to uh, London, and we played London, we played in Hamburg, and I mean, it was great. Once the Brothers of the Night was established as a five piece, they often had Debbie play with them. They had lots of wild experiences together and really became good buddies. Oh yeah, she fell out of the back door of the club one night where we were playing at. 
Gilborn and I, I can't tell you how many times we'd take her home. You know, and maybe I shouldn't say this, but I told Debbie one time, kiddingly. I said, you know, Debbie, you were a lot more fun when you drank all the time. Because <laughs> she got real serious, you know, which is good. But she helped so many. We'll talk more about how Debbie got sober and the impact she had on other people in the next episode. But I could tell that Chuck felt like she really helped him out. She helped me a lot. I've never, luckily, done the alcohol or any drugs or anything like that. I was going through a hard time with uh, divorce and my daughter and stuff like that. And she's so good. One of the things she told me I'll never forget is because I was going through this divorce, but it wasn't a divorce that was bothered me. It was my ex took my six-year-old daughter to Canada. You know, it's like somebody taking your kid away from you. But I couldn't stop it. But, you know, she could tell I was struggling a little bit. But she said, nobody wants to be around anybody that's unhappy as you are. And I go, you're so right. Because, you know, you well, where'd all my friends go? Nobody wants to be around a miserable person. So I wasn't miserable anymore. <laughs> it was great that Debbie knew how to talk Chuck out of a funk. But as we talked more... I got back to the topic that I was always curious about, which was how did he keep a day job the whole time he was playing all those gigs? I was at the city 43 years. Started out in safety and health, and then I went into training and development. I did that for a long time. It's a miracle that I'm still alive. All those years, I'd play three, four nights a week. We'd play till 1. You know, I'd drag home about 2.30, get up at 6, go to work. And of the 43 years I worked at the city, I had a total of three sick days. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. You know, thank God for that. But, you know, I'm not saying I didn't go to work when, you know, I feel a lot of times if I don't feel good, I'm a lot better going for it and going to work. But I still remember there were nights and I drank too much tequila, and I'd be up at 6 o'clock in the morning getting ready for work, and I'd be trying to shave, and I'd be standing there going, uh, you know, like a dry heave deal. <laughs> Am I going to make it? <laughs> and what I'd do, I'd get to work, start out with some crackers, and then sip on a Coke. By that night, here I was again. Let's go. <laughs> but no, I don't know how I did it. But by me doing that, I was able to get my two daughters through college, do all that. But some way, I was able to do it. You know, maybe three or four hours sleep. And then I'd go play, and same thing, over and over. I did that for years and years and years. Because, you know, a lot of times I'd work with Debbie at the Full Moon on 15th, Wednesday, and then we'd play Thursday, Full Moon South. And then I'd usually work with Byfield or whoever on weekends. So, you know, I was playing three or four nights a week, every week. I find it incredible that Chuck was able to work for the city of Tulsa for 43 years while also being a gigging drummer. I'm really grateful to Chuck for talking to me. He's really a gateway to all the Tulsa musicians that I've been talking to. There's no doubt that that's not the last you've heard from him. But I want to close this episode talking about Debbie and the impact she made on other people. She made an impact on Chuck just in the human connection that they had as co-workers, working together so many nights. She also made an impression on countless other people in Tulsa through Alcoholics Anonymous. 
In the next episode, we're going to hear a bit more about that side of her life and the struggle it took for her to get sober. I'm tired. Doing it on my own was just horrible. I mean, if there is a living hell, and I believe that's what hell is, it's trying not to drink on your own willpower. And that, for me, was a horrible existence, trying not to drink. Rediscovering Debbie Campbell is produced by Lynn Florin and Aubrey Allen for Growth Network Podcasts. Additional support provided by Brianna Javon. Don't forget to check out the show notes where you can find links to sign up for our newsletter and follow us on our social pages, such as our Facebook group filled with not only fans, but also her friends and family. Thanks to our guests for sharing their stories and to the generous donors who have contributed financially on our website. This is a labor of love, and we appreciate you taking the time to listen, share, and support us any way you can. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hey everyone, my name is Aubrey Allen and I'm a producer here on Rediscovering Debbie Campbell. Together, Linz and I have put hundreds of hours into this project so far and we're just getting started. So if you want to help us continue to tell Debbie's story, please click the donate button in our show notes or in our link tree to make a one-time donation. Every little bit will go directly towards the production of this show, which works to showcase and preserve the history of Debbie Campbell and artists like her. So thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. If you've ever wanted to edit your own videos or podcasts, but were overwhelmed by how complicated the software was, you are in luck. Descript, or Descript, is a magical tool that allows you to edit text as if you're editing a Google Doc. We use it for this show and use it collaboratively with clients and co-producers on all of our shows. And trust me, it's easy to learn. Click our affiliate link in the show notes to discover the magical tool for yourself. And if you want some guidance on how to learn and use it, please sign up for our Magic of Descript newsletter.